All right, good news, right? You're hated. Uh, that's what you wanted to come in here at church this morning. Uh, my name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors at Citizens. I want to welcome you. I know we have a couple new faces today. We're really glad that you're here with us. Um, this last Saturday was the 20-year anniversary of the September 11th attack on our country and the tragic death of 3,000 Americans. Um, some of us weren't alive at that time, um, but those of us who were um, remember it well. And the anniversary, because it was 20 years, um, there there's all these new documentaries, um, new footage that came out, interviews of people that were there. Um, and if you were on anywhere on social media on that day, you probably saw a bunch of posts from people um, because all of us who went through that experience have one thing in common regarding September 11th, 2001. We know exactly where we were when we heard the news. And we remember most details of what happened in our lives that day. When people witness something that emotionally impactful, we tend to remember details that we otherwise may not. May not. And that's the way our brains actually work. One of the jobs that our brain has is to process memories to help us make sense of and meaning of the things that are happening in our lives, especially when we go through something that increases our emotional affect that high. Um, so the, the brain has this enormous power to retain information, and the higher the affect, the more likely it is to hold on to details. That's one of the reasons why eyewitnesses are so valuable in a legal trial, right? If the prosecution in a murder trial has an eyewitnesses, an eyewitness that says they saw the defendant commit the crime, it's virtually a slam dunk case. The only hope the defense has is to discredit the eyewitness enough, discredit their character or make them question what they saw in order to get the jury to question the account, right? Now, I want you to imagine that you are an eyewitness in a high-profile murder case. And your job in giving your eyewitness account is actually to acquit an innocent party. Okay, someone's being falsely accused of this crime, you were there, you know what you saw, but it's taken a long time. It's been months and maybe even years since the crime occurred. And you've told the story hundreds of times, you've gone over it in your head, rehearsing the details. And so you're, you're pretty confident that you can maintain the defendant's innocence with your testimony. But as the, the trial gets closer, it's getting a bunch of press, and the, pub, the general public is convinced that the defendant is guilty. So they're, they're sort of against you, right? And people start smearing you, and every detail of your life is coming under scrutiny. Every lie you've ever been told is being documented and shared. Your life and the lives of your friends and family members are, are being threatened. During the trial... The cross-examination from the prosecution is relentless. Every part of you is exposed and called into question to the point where you begin to question yourself, like doubting yourself. 
Um, you're, you're in such stress that you're, you're starting to mix up your words. They're asking you questions. You kind of say it, and then they, they hold those against you. And so you're kind of thinking, man, like, do I remember this accurately? You're questioning yourself. Maybe I didn't remember exactly what happened. At some point, if you are in that position, you might wonder, is all of this worth it? Like, at what cost to me do I maintain this person's innocence? Is it really my responsibility? Like, what, what would it take to have the resolve necessary to stay the course? You, you would have to sort of love justice enough, right, and have care for this person enough, or even more so just a sense of self-dignity, of like, hey, I know what's right, I know what I saw, and I'm going to agree with myself. No one is going to make me decide that I am not who I say I am, that I don't believe what I say I believe. That deep resolve would be of great necessity. In our text this morning, in John 15, Jesus basically says, you're in that situation, okay? Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the gospel, the scriptures, all the truth about Jesus is virtually on trial and we have been declared and appointed his witnesses to the jury of the world. And we have two choices, okay? To bear true witness of him or to bear false witness against him. That is the life of a Christian, a person who follows Jesus. That's, the, that's what they face every day. We spend our days either bearing true witness to Christ or false witness against him. There's really no middle ground. And the stakes are really high. Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you're in danger. Okay, the world is against you. You have an opposition, you have an enemy. Okay? The good news in this case, different from a trial case, when you're in a trial, like, no one's gonna bail you out. Like, it's all you. In this case, however, we're not alone on the stand. In fact, it says the Spirit of God goes before us to bear witness on his own account, of his own accord, for our sake. That's the good news. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in and look at this together. Jesus, we worship you and thank you this morning. Even when we think about um, being in a courtroom, there really is a, a courtroom of our own story, our own life, where we stand trial as sinners and we've all been found guilty and yet you took our punishment. You took our sentence. When we denied you like Peter, you made us pillars of your church. When we abandoned you like your disciples did, you called us friends. That is good news, Jesus. We thank you for that. So we ask, Lord, that you would make us bold in the power of your spirit. Make us a people who witness without fear 
to a world that though they hated you and may hate us, still desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. Help us take up our call this morning. We love you and thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 15, starting in verse 26. Uh, We'll have all of the scriptures on the screen, if that is easier for you. Uh, So in John 15, Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry in life, and he's in the upper room with his disciples. This is the night before he will go to be crucified. So he knows exactly what is about to happen to him. And he knows that this sort of cruciform way of life is what all his disciples after him will also experience. So what he does is gives them this very familiar and beautiful picture of a vine, a grapevine. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. Remain in me. The only way that you will ever produce the fruit of faithful witness and endure the challenges of being a Christian in the world is by staying close to me. The world, though it is fierce in its opposition, cannot cut you off from the vine if you remain in me. And so he says, don't go looking for another source. Don't go looking for nutrients from some other vine. I am the source for all you need. And when I go, he says, I will send you a helper that will help you remain. And we look at and start in verse 26. He says, but when the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, so notice that Jesus says, The burden of our witness is primarily on the shoulders of the Spirit of God himself, okay? Before you ever take the stand to recount what you have seen, I will go ahead of you, actually, and do all of the heavy lifting because there's nothing that you have witnessed that the Spirit of God hasn't already attested to. So when you take the stand to be my witness, all you have to do is agree with what the Spirit has already testified about me. It says, and also, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, normally when we talk about this idea of being witnesses, of, of being evangelists as citizens, we use the word mission, okay? If you're new, our vision statement is that we are a family of servant missionaries. Those are the identities that we've been given by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The word mission comes from the word apostolos. You might recognize that's the word apostle, which means sent one, okay? So normally we would preach a sermon on witness using mission, Um, but Today, we're going to talk about the word witness, which is really good. It was a good exercise for me. I'd never really studied this word, looked at it from um, a biblical standpoint. And so the Hebrew word for witness is the word aid. And the first time it shows up in the scriptures, it's used negatively in Exodus 20, 16, in the eighth commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
Okay? In the Old Testament law, if you gave a false testimony against someone, then you received the punishment for whatever crime they were being accused of. Okay? This was a really serious matter. Okay? If you lied under oath, it's like, oh, you're going to actually get the punishments as if you committed the crime that you're accusing them of. Then the word aid is used several other times in the Old Testament, but used positively, and it's used as an identity statement for the people of God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. God says, you, and he's saying to the nation of Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that's Jesus, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Okay? Most of the references to the word witness in the scripture are not imperatives. They're not words of, here's what you must do, but indicatives, okay? Which is kind of interesting because you'll see throughout the scriptures uh, command to testify and preach and proclaim. Okay, these are all exhortations. These are all imperatives, things you must do. But witnesses are simply what we are. It's who we are. It's an assumed identity that we have as God's people. Okay, so when the nation of Israel heard the word witness in Isaiah 43, they understood the job that they had been given by God to give an accurate account of who God is and what he has done to the world. Their role as a nation was to be his key witnesses to the jury of the world, regardless of what it costs them. That's the job of the people of Israel. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you see that over and over again, they fail to do that. They bear false witness against Yahweh. The temptation for them is too great to serve and worship other gods. So instead of giving an accurate living account of who God is as a kingdom of priests, they bear false witness against God and indict themselves. Which is why Jesus had to send his chief, or why God, why Yahweh had to send his chief witness, Jesus, to to open the eyes of the blind. So that, again, the people could bear witness to the king and his kingdom with their own eyes. And so the question, one question for us this morning as we think about this idea of witness is do you identify yourself as a witness to the world of who God is and what he's done? Do you take up that identity for yourself? Does that impact your way of being in the world? When you think about your life, when you think about your job and your relationships and the places that you go, do you go out saying, I am a witness, that's a primary way that I'm oriented in my relationship to the world. And that same command that he gave the nation of Israel to resist other gods is given to us. To say, while the world invites me to sort of um, follow other gods and bear witness to other gods, that's not who I am. When John quotes Jesus here in his gospel, um, he replaces the word, the Hebrew word, aid for witness, with the Greek word, martyreo. Okay? Martyreo is the Greek word for witness, 
And that's where we get our English word for martyr. Now, I used to think that martyr was a guy named Justin's last name. Ever heard of Justin Martyr? Uh, it turns out that it's a word that means witness. Okay? And we know historically that a martyr is a witness who is killed for their faith. They're Christians who have died, given their lives, refusing to bear false witness against Christ. And by doing so, they lose their life. And and while their oppressors and their murderers was trying to suppress their witness and keep the world from hearing their message, it actually has the reverse effect. I don't know if you've ever read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a really great book. Um, You and I owe our knowledge of Jesus to persecuted Christians in the early church who refused to renounce Jesus even though they were being crucified and tortured, horribly tortured. The death of Christians in the first few centuries rather than suppressing the gospel, made it grow like wildfire. Second century church father Tertullian famously said this, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. There's something about Christians who are greatly suffering and still bearing witness to God that lends credibility to their message, right? And we're not talking about like, the cowardly act of flying a plane into a building. We're talking about like publicly being tortured, shamed, and like watching their own family members also die next to them. It's estimated that 14 million Christians died as martyrs between 33 AD and the year 1900. 14 million. It's a staggering number. And... It's easy to think that martyrdom is something that's maybe reserved, like Christian martyrdom is reserved for the past, you know, um, sort of antiquated, barbaric societies killing lots of Christians. Certainly things are better now. The truth is, however, that in the 20th century, 26 million Christians were martyred. Okay, 14 million from AD 33 to 1900, and then in the 20th century, 26 million. And there's, it's still going on today. The top three countries for persecution of Christians today are North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Martyrdom is still alive and well. And it's not surprising if we just take Jesus' words here. right? It's exactly what he said would happen. Let's pick it up in verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus uses a narrative technique here that his disciples were really familiar with, okay? He switches between two kinds of phrases. 
The first one, if the world hates you, is something called a first-class conditional statement that assumes the statement is true for the sake of argument. The second phrase is a second-class conditional, which assumes the statement is false. Jesus would do this, or, or writers or speakers would do this to add force to what they're saying. He's saying, if the world hates you, and it will, okay, the assumption of truth, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, and you're not, okay, that's the second class, the world would love you as its own. Jesus says, if you are my witnesses, if you are my disciples, Plan on being hated by the world if you follow me. If you are trying to reconcile your faith in me with your desire to be loved by the world, you are wasting your time. Jesus is saying, if you claim to be a Christian, but long to be loved by the world rather than hated, you didn't follow me. You followed a version of me that you crafted in your own image, not in the image of a holy God. You are a false witness. And it's only getting harder to be a Christian in our society. Not easier. Okay? We're not on track to be more loved by the world than we are today. The pressure is mounting. And many disingenuous Christians are succumbing to that pressure and leaving the faith. Mark Sayers, pastor in Melbourne, Australia, has been very helpful to me. Um, Pastors need pastors, and I would call him one of mine. Um, He talks about this in his book, Disappearing Church. He talks about how we're living in a post-Christian society that he refers to as a third culture, okay? Something he describes as a world full of people who want the benefits of Christ's kingdom without Christ the king. He says this, the temptation of this discomfort between Orthodox Christian faith and the civil religion of the third culture is to do what it takes for the pressure to go away. All the believer must do is ease up on the beliefs that grate against contemporary sensibilities. Tweak your view on sexuality to be more embracing of today's mood or move from a particularist view of Jesus to a universalist one and you are warmly embraced into the fold. Thus, for many Christians raised with the ethic of relevance of proving to the world that Christians can both be believers and carry the contemporary currency of cool. This is my childhood, okay? Growing up in youth group. You can be cool. I used to say, I want to be the godliest and coolest person people have ever met. Okay, those are words that came out of my mouth. Okay, for people like that, nobody here is surprised that knows me, (laughs) that I would say that. For those people like me, the new pressure presented by an intolerant tolerance proves too much. Just too much. Some compartmentalize their beliefs into an orthodox secularist mashup, and others simply disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. Okay? I have watched, witnessed many friends, many people that I have discipled 
in the faith leave the church, leave their faith in the last few years. And I understand the pressure is really, really great. It's really great. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to believe that God's word is without error and authoritative. Like the whole Bible, not just parts of it, not just your favorite parts of what Jesus said, but the whole Bible. It's difficult to believe that hell is a real place and people go there. That's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that there is no other pathway to God other than through Christ, though that's what he said. It's difficult to believe that gender and sexuality are part of God's created order and not a social construct. It's difficult to believe that God would allow evil to continue in the world in order to accomplish a greater purpose of bringing himself glory and humans a kind of flourishing that's beyond our scope of understanding. If you believe these kinds of things and lots of other stuff we believe and bear witness to them, you might be hated as Jesus was hated. One of the things that's come up in our church is this idea of like, hey, we don't want to have like an us versus them mentality. Like, can we be really careful about like not making too much of a distinction between like the Christians and the world, you know? And I understand that, okay? Um, If you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus. We want you to know we're so glad you're here. Like we, you are wanted here, okay? This is a space for you. We're not trying to create, when we talk about this distinction between believers in the world, we're not trying to create unnecessary division, okay? We have plenty of that, right, in our country. But here's the thing. Jesus says right here that that distinction exists, okay? And so I unashamedly quote him when he says there's a difference between the people of God and the people of the world, okay? Let me show you a familiar image you might have seen, okay? That's our logo of our church, okay? And it's very intentional. Those two triangles represent two kingdoms, okay? We're trying to live out, what does it mean for me to have dual citizenship, to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom and to live in San Francisco? And you see those gold dots in the middle? That's the overlap between what the kingdom of God values and what the people of San Francisco value. And we try to live in that space as much as we possibly can. But there's going to come a moment, okay, where I just have to declare where my allegiance lies unapologetically and say, man, I love San Francisco. I love what it's about. I love things that it represents. But I follow a man named Jesus from Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago, declared himself God and the rightful king of the whole world, and my allegiance is to him first and foremost. So if you're not a Christian, if you don't follow Jesus, you're of the world. And it's fine. We're not mad at you, okay? We don't hate you. This doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say Christians will hate the world. 
okay? We aren't allowed to hate the world as Christians. It makes no sense for a Christian to hate the world because no one is born a Christian. And so every Christian was once of the world. But it does say the world will hate Christians and says there's a clear difference between these two groups of people. And so if you, if you feel like the church should apologize for that, or if you feel like that feels cringy to you, is that a, is that a cool word, cringy? My, son, my 12-year-old son says that. Um, if that feels cringy, that might be evidence that you have crafted a new gospel with a new Jesus that's different than this Jesus right here in John 15. How can I labor as a missionary and fulfill my calling to be a witness if I don't see the world as distinct from me and that they really need Jesus? They really need to know about him. When we shrink back from what the Bible calls us to do, we bear false witness against God. Jesus continues on saying more of the same thing, speaking in the same pattern. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, but I did, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, but I did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Here's what Jesus sort of says in this, this last section. He says, actually, every person alive is an eyewitness of me because of what I did, the work that I did while I was there, okay? When the prophet said there would be a servant that would come and give sight to the blind so they could see who God is, he did it. Jesus came and made manifest the manifold wisdom of God when he came to live among us. So there's no one who can say, I don't believe because I have not seen. Jesus turns the courtroom on its head and says, The jury aren't just listening to an eyewitness account. They are themselves witnesses, eyewitnesses, because the Spirit has taken the stand and revealed the truth of who I am. And actually, he's done it through my people, the church. If you've seen the church in all its flaws, and people have, then they've seen Jesus. Okay? And there's, there's lots to consider about, you know, God has compelled us to be evangelists, and certainly there are people who haven't heard the gospel. Okay? But I happen to believe that like, every person gets an opportunity in their life to encounter Jesus. That people don't just go without. That Jesus loves every person and does some work to reveal himself to them. And that is true. I believe it's true. And in that moment, the Spirit of God is bearing witness and the world is saying no. And they reject him, hating him without 
cause. And man, they, the world may have cause to hate us, right? But not Jesus. There's no cause to hate him. He is innocent. Any accusation against Christ is a false witness. The good news is that even though the world and many professing Christians bear false witness against Jesus, that doesn't determine the verdict. Okay? We have verses 26 and 27 in this passage. Without them, we would have no hope. But we do. Verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That is really good news. That lets us off the hook today. Right? As, a, as I'm bringing this word and you're thinking, oh man, have I been bold? Have I been willing? Okay? This is the good news that Jesus wants for you today. That though we, like the nation of Israel, struggle and fail to give a true account of Christ, we get to rest in his satisfied work. Okay? News of Jesus' death and resurrection has made its way through two millennia. Like, no one can stop it. It continues to go forward. And the Spirit is the one making it go forward. And you and I are filled with that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So we are not disempowered, fearful witnesses because God is for us. He's with us and he's for us and therefore no one can stand against us. And so I think one big question for us is has the gospel taken root in our hearts is that memory so deeply seared in us that we remember exactly where we were when we heard it exactly what happened that day it was so real and of God that no amount of pressure can snatch that away from me. The affect was too high. Have you had an encounter with the living God that is so profound that it has lasting power in your memory? If you're like me, you forget a lot. You forget. Which is why we come back here every Sunday and we go to our citizens' communities and in our huddles to go back and rehearse the gospel again, to tell and retell our stories over and over again. 
Anybody that has been a member of this church for the seven years that we've been around is like, I have told my freaking story a billion times, okay? And you're gonna keep telling it. We're gonna keep putting you in rooms where you tell your story because you need to hear yourself tell that story again. I know exactly where I was when Jesus said, this child belongs to me. There are three things I want to point out from this passage that Jesus tells us that if we're going to have the courage to be his witnesses, that we need. Three things we need. If we're going to survive as his witnesses in the midst of the world's hatred. The first one is, and we've talked about this, remember who you are. That to bear witness is part of your Christian identity. It's not an imperative. It's not like, hey, you got to do this, you know? It's, hey, this is who you are. When's the last time you shared your faith with a non-believer? When's the last time you just let a person in your life that isn't a Christian know that you are a Christian? Without even, like, trying to convince them or anything, like, oh, yeah, like, I follow Jesus, you know? That's a really important part of who I am, you know? To, To be my friend is to know that about me. Right? And then if, if you haven't, maybe just ask yourself this morning, why is that? Why is it that you haven't? Is it fear that you'd be hated? Maybe Jesus is inviting you into that space to say, hey, I actually, I want to invite you um, to grow in your maturity as a disciple. I want you to experience a little more of that hate that I have experienced for yourself. Um, you need that, actually. There's a closeness that I want to have with you that comes through that experience. Okay? And notice that when it says, remember who you are, he's not, that's, that you is a plural you. Okay? He's speaking to his disciples. You're not alone as a witness. We're to be sent in pairs or more. As you think about who the people in your life that don't yet know Jesus, be thinking also about a brother or sister who you would love to share that burden with and partner with. Like, man, you know, my non-Christian friend like needs to meet Dave, you know, or they need to meet Bryn because she can show this part of the gospel. That's just so beautiful. Like, we're the body of Christ. And so, like, if I'm in my non-believing friend's life, they're seeing the, like, fingernail of Jesus, okay? We need all of us. It's like, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. Now I see him when you are all together. Remember who you are. The second thing is, abide in Jesus. In verse 27 there, Jesus reminds his disciples that they have been with him from the beginning. Hey, we can't witness about Jesus if we're not with him. That amazing, beautiful quote from Pope Francis that Dave quoted in the beginning of, of we'll never be set on fire if we don't abide in the nearness and the warmth of Christ. 
Okay, this past week in our citizens communities, we talked about life with, life with God, life on life, life in community, and life on mission. Those are the four ways that we spend time with Jesus. Okay, so maybe just ask, like, which of those spaces have you neglected a bit? Okay, I know for me, I, I like life on life and life in community. Right now, that has felt like those are the spaces I want to be with Jesus. And I've struggled more with time just alone with the Lord and struggled with wanting to do mission. So I feel invited by the Spirit to say, why is that the case? Can we grow in that? The third thing is receive the power of the Spirit. Okay? Last week, Dave mentioned those four things we need to know from Jesus, that we're accepted, that we are delivered, that we are not alone, and that we have authority. I know a number of people were encouraged by that reminder, that our authority comes from the Spirit of God. When we testify about Jesus, we're speaking not from our own power, but in the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Okay, And so it doesn't matter what you say very much. It just matters that you're willing to open up your mouth and speak. Let the Spirit do his work. It's difficult to be Christ's witness. He promises, he says, hey, you're going to share in my sufferings if you, if you are, if you take this up. But the good news is that God is doing all the heavy lifting. All we have to do is come as willing parties this morning. Okay, let me pray for us. Jesus is one of those texts that would be very easy to sort of skip over or, you know, find a way to to spin more positive. So we just let it be. We let it sit. It's meant to be weighty. And we thank you that the only relief we have from such a heavy truth is you. You are the rest and the relief from the inevitable hatred that we will experience. I pray that would be enough for us today, that you would be enough. They would say, Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth all the struggle because I remember exactly where I was when you rescued me out of sin and death, forgiving me, setting me free. Jesus, we praise you for your word, every part of it, even the parts that are challenging. And we trust you, Spirit, to do a good work in our lives through this. In your name we pray, amen.